seated. Father God, thank you for this moment to reorient ourselves and prepare us now to think through just how to survive a storm with you as our cornerstone. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Morning, everybody. Fourth and fifth graders, you're dismissed to your class. Fourth and fifth graders, you're dismissed to your class. Uh, let me ask a question real quick in terms of how many of you have ever been on a cruise? Anyone, anyone do cruises? At, oh, quite a few of you. Yeah, I've discovered 10 years ago I love cruising. Now, I didn't know if I would. My wife was a travel agent, and she had already been on one, so she talked me into going on to a cruise with her, and I thought, yeah, I mean, it'd be fine. I wouldn't oppose to it, but I didn't, uh, I, I didn't know if I'd really like it. I mean, being on a boat, you know, what is really can you do? And, and then I discovered that you can eat food 24 hours a day on a boat, and I became a huge fan of cruising. In fact, uh, last year, my wife and I celebrated 20 years of marriage, and so, in Octo- yeah, thank you. In October, we uh, went on the Allure of the Seas. It's a Royal Caribbean ship. It is the largest cruise ship in the world. I mean, when you walk in, it is just overwhelming by way of just size and scope and restaurants. It's like a floating hotel slash mall. It's, it's crazy. But what happens is now, because I love cruising, I'm telling you, whenever we book a cruise, I'm telling you, months in advance, I'm already excited. Like, you know what I'm talking And you might have those other vacations where you just start looking for. I mean, there's something about being on the boat that I look forward to. You know, we usually sail in the Caribbean, so I love the heat and the warmth and the poolside. I love the formal dining time. I love, I mean, I love even the afternoon going and getting a delicious hot dog. I mean, these are, these are things that to me make up cruise. My favorite, though, is people watching. Like, there's all sorts of crazy people on a ship that, you know, they're never going to see you again. I'm never going to see them again. So there's lots of people watching opportunities. And so I just find that in that I had the great hope and expectation and dreams moving into that vacation trip on a cruise, just all that excitement and anticipation. And we're going to go to this port of call. We're going to go to this Caribbean island. We're going to do this. And all those sorts of things are at work. I I can't help but imagine it probably was no different for Frank and Emily Goldsmith and their son, Frankie. Now, the picture that you're looking at here is this. There is no picture, is there? There there they are. The Goldsmiths, there they are. That's Frank and Emily Goldsmith and their son, Frankie. Now, she's holding a baby named Bertie who tragically died in 1911. So you can imagine just the shipwreck that that is in terms of your life to lose one of your children. So a year later, Mr. Goldsmith, Frank Goldsmith, the idea, let's go on a vacation together. And they decided to board, which at the time was the largest passenger cruise ship in the world. It was the latest ship by the White Star Line fleet under the command of Edward Smith. Her passengers included some of the most wealthy people in the world. And the ship, at the time, which unheard of, it had the latest in terms of comfort and luxury. It had an onboard gymnasium, which was just crazy back in the day. It had its own swimming pool. It had libraries, high-class restaurants, opulent cabins. It had a powerful wireless telegraph that was provided not only for the convenience of the passengers, but also for operational use. So can you imagine Frankie and Frank and his wife, Emily, their excitement and enthusiasm to finally, you know, we're going to go on a trip, we're going to go on a vacation, kind of a trip of the lifetime, kind of like being on the allure of the seas in its day. And so they board, and the ship leaves Southampton, England on April 10th, 1912. It makes a few port of calls. They stop in France. They stop in Queenstown, Ireland, and then they turn and head off to the big city, New York City. I mean, could you imagine the, the excitement of getting to go see New York City? And then finally, on April 14th, it was four days into the cruise at 11.45 p.m., 375 miles south of Newfoundland, the ship that you know that was unsinkable as the Titanic 
hit an iceberg. And after it hit an iceberg, the ship began to take on water until finally, two hours and 45 minutes later, the boat sank. Two hours and 45 minutes later. Now, if you know anything about Titanic history, there's lots of controversy that surrounds it, like they didn't have enough lifeboats for the number of passengers on the boat. And even the lifeboats themselves were not filled to capacity before they were released. One lifeboat only had 12 people, and it could hold over 40. The fact that in the, in the closest ship was the USS Californian, just two miles away, but it ignored the distress call and signals from the Titanic and all sorts of violations. And in the end, 1,502 people died on the Titanic. Could you imagine the shipwreck. And the goldsmiths who were looking forward to this vacation, to getting there, all of a sudden find themselves here. And Emily Goldsmith and her son Frankie survived. Mr. Goldsmith, Frankie Sr., did not. In the aftermath, the White Star Line Company sent cargo ships out of Nova Scotia to retrieve the bodies. And so they packed a ship full of embalming supplies and undertakers and clergy. And in the end, there were so many bodies, they could only retrieve 333. So the captain decided that they would only retrieve and bring back only those who were in first-class passengers would get to be brought back. They, they justified it by saying, well, you might have disputes with wealthy men to resolve their, their large estates, and they needed visual evidence and identities were, were made. So as a result, most of the third-class passengers and crew were buried at sea. But here's what we know about shipwrecks. They're unique in that most of the time, it's sort of like a slow-motion wreck taking place. Now, sometimes your life might get hit in a way that it feels like it came, boom, out of the blue, out of nowhere. You didn't see it coming. It's like a bus, right? You just kind of, if you do see it coming, it's just for a split second, and boom, there it is. In fact, if, if you were here maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, we did a series entitled Sucker Punch, which is that whole that idea of, yeah, I was sucker punched. I didn't see this coming. How do I handle it? Now, shipwrecks are different because shipwrecks, it isn't like it came out of nowhere. It feels more like it's a slow-motion accident in which you feel... Every moment of the pain or the fear or the crisis or the concern. It took the Titanic two hours and 45 minutes to sink. Could you imagine having to live through an experience two hours and 45 minutes of that shipwreck? It was actually even enough time in terms of its actual sinking that the ship's band, before the tilt was too bad on the boat, were able to play the hymn, Nearer My God to Thee, to all the frightened passengers. And then finally, after almost three hours, it's gone. And you find yourself in a place you didn't intend. We're not supposed to be here. We were supposed to be there in a situation that you never dreamt of. I mean, when you boarded here, you had all these pictures of what it's going to be like to do this and to experience that. And not once did this enter your mind. This was never on your radar. And I'm telling you, just by way of being human, we all seem to have what we call future orientations. Like we look forward to things that are to come, and it starts very early. We begin to dream of what our life is supposed to be, what it's supposed to look like, and where we're going to go, and what we're going to do, and all the different aspects. In fact, let me just say this as a side note. The most tragic thing that could happen to a child is to lose a future orientation. Like the worst thing that could happen to our kids in the school down the street here is not that they fail their I-step test scores, as bad as that might be, but that they lose their future orientation, that they can't think about their life in the future, about college, about their dreams, about their hopes, because they're stuck in survival mode. Future orientation is essential, and it starts very early, right? Little boys and girls, they begin to dream about what they're going to be when they grow up and who they're going to marry 
and how many children they're going to have and what life adventures they're going to experience. And when they get older into their teen years, it begins to take on more shapes. You know, we're going we're to go to this college and get this degree, and I want to work this internship and have this experience, and these gifts and these talents are coming to fruition. And just like a vacation cruise, you begin to look forward to this picture of life that you're hoping for, you're dreaming of, and that you're expecting. And then you turn 45 years old, which, by the way, is not that old. And you're sitting there taking the stock of your life, and this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't what I dreamt up. This is not the life that I was. No little girl grows up wishing and hoping and dreaming of the day where she'll be twice divorced with four children with three different fathers and barely making ends meet. You understand, no little girl has that as their dream. No little boy dreams that one day he'll spend 20 years working in a factory job, not really having any opportunity for advancement or promotion, and then one day getting a memo saying that the factory was sold off and it's now going to be closed down, and after 20 years he loses his job. Nobody has that as their life dream. No one includes in their life dreams as they begin to have this future orientation that they're going to spend eight weeks in a drug rehab. No one includes in their script of life chemotherapy, Nobody puts in, hey, I'd like to have major surgery when I get older, or I'd like to wait in the Social Security line so hopefully I can get on disability. These are not stories that we write for ourselves in terms of how we want our life to end up. Very few people as children say, I, I want to get married, and then after 12 years spend six months in marriage counseling because of an affair or because my husband or wife doesn't love me anymore. No, no one has in their script the dream of one day sitting in Palmer Funeral Home and having to shop for caskets for your child or for your spouse. Nobody has down 29-year-old widower in terms of life hopes and aspirations. And when those things happen, all of a sudden we discover that we're in the middle of a shipwreck. Like we were supposed to be there, and instead it looks like I've ended up here. All of my hopes and my dreams are sinking. And we find we're living in a script that we didn't write for ourselves. I don't ever remember auditioning for this part, and now I've got roles like ex-wife or divorcee or alcoholic or unemployed and unemployable or felon or crippling arthritis and you find you're desperate for rescue I was supposed to be there now I'm here what do you do when you experience a shipwreck when it feels sort of like a slow motion accident because listen most of the time our marriages when they end it's not like a sucker punch where you didn't see it coming for most of it's like oh no it's been bad for years we kept trying, we kept hanging up, but it really, it was, it's been bad. And so for years, you just kind of felt the effects of this sinking ship. And for most of us, it's not like, uh, you know, it's maybe that life choice. We hit an iceberg, maybe it was that one-night stand, or maybe that stupid relationship with that guy that everybody warned you about, or that one party where an acquaintance offered you a snort or a smoke, and you went ahead and tried it. And it's sort of like an iceberg. It wasn't like everything just sunk in that moment. It was just an iceberg that over the next couple of years, you began to see like a slow-motion accident everything in your life, your hopes, your dreams sinking. Now what? And here's what you'll notice if you're a follower of Jesus. He never promises us a shipwreck-free life. He just doesn't. In fact, if you ever have anyone try to sell you Jesus with the promises of, oh yeah, and if you'll give your life to Jesus, then you're going to be rich, you're never going to have any diseases, everyone's going to love you, your kids will never be in rebellion, I mean, you're going to be financially, I mean, don't buy it. Like, Jesus never promised us a ship wreck free life. In fact, some of his greatest servants, even with him in the boat, are always in fear and jeopardy of sinking, of our life is going down. And some of Jesus' greatest servants actually experienced shipwrecks. I mean, people that Jesus loves. Did you know the Apostle Paul experienced 
three shipwrecks. He mentions it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. He's talking about his life and ministry, which isn't going too well, to be quite honest with you. He says, listen, three times I got beat, and once I was pelted with stones, and three times I was shipwrecked. I even spent a night and a day in the open sea. This is the Apostle Paul. I'm th- Jesus loves him. Like, he's a servant of Jesus. He wrote, like, the majority of our New Testament, and even he in his life experienced shipwrecks. So I would like to talk over the next four weeks of what do you do when you find that your life, is, I didn't sign up for this. I was supposed to be there, and now I find myself here. How do you survive the shipwreck? Now, usually in the event of a shipwreck, you've got one of two possible situations. One, you find yourself on a deserted island, that you find yourself on some remote, isolated island. Now, the good news in that is you've got a greater chance of finding food and water and maybe some shelter and fire. But here's the bad news. If it truly is a remote, isolated island, the chance of anyone ever finding you are not very good. <laughs> so anyone watch the movie Castaway with, uh, right, the, Wilson? I mean, you get the movie. Yeah. See, in the end, even he's got to get off the island. Nobody's come to rescue him. Your second option is you're just adrift on the sea, on the ocean. Now, the good news here is your chances of being found by a plane or a boat or something like that are much greater. In fact, did you know even in just plain weather, just average weather conditions, you can float 50 miles adrift on the ocean? 50 miles. Now, here's the bad news. You don't necessarily have a lot of time because you don't have a lot of food and water and things that you need, and you could be adrift for a long time. The picture that you're looking at now, Maurice and Marilyn Bailey are their names. They're a British couple that in 1973, they were on a yacht, and a whale smashed into their yacht, and it sank. And they were adrift on the ocean for 117 days. They drifted for 1,500 miles. In fact, they witnessed seven ships pass them by. as They were, could you imagine, screaming and yelling and just, until they were finally picked up by a Korean fishing boat, and they survived. Now, the other danger, of course, of being adrift is you're, you're open to exposure and sharks and storms and things like that. But here's what every survivalist will say. If you, if the secret to surviving a shipwreck, number one is this. Surviving a shipwreck depends on how you mentally react. I, I know you didn't sign up to be here. You signed up to be there. But here you are in this shipwreck, and it feels like your hopes and your dreams for life have sunk. How you respond in this moment will determine whether or not you survive. And how you mentally, what happens in your mind, in your thinking, in your thought. Like, if you immediately move to, we're all going to die. I mean, you get in that fetal position. I mean, your chances of survival are going to depend on how you mentally react. Now, you hear this all the time in crisis situations, right? In the event of a crisis, remain calm. That's the key. How do we mentally react to, listen, we're not denying that there was a shipwreck. It's just in the midst of it, how do I remain in my mental attitude calm in the face of it? That, that ch- the chances then increase by way of my ability to react and respond appropriately. If I'm freaked out and panicking, I won't respond appropriately. And so throughout history, you see calls to be calm in the midst of what feels like shipwrecks, like everything's going down. In World War II in England, when the Germans were nightly bombing uh, England, what did Winston Churchill put all over the cities and all over the country? Posters that you see nowadays are kind of coming back, right? It says, it says keep calm and carry on. Just keep calm and carry on. You'll hear the announcements sometimes before a movie or some other event, and in the event of an emergency, remain calm and make your way to the nearest exit. I'm telling you, I think on airplanes, pilots get training on how to speak in a calm, almost, I'm about to take a nap way. Right? You ever notice that on an airplane? The captain gets on, you're kind of flying up in the air, and the captain finally comes on. 
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to American Airline 3642. We're flying at about an altitude of 33,000 feet. The weather condition. You're almost like you're almost napping. But I prefer that because if the pilot ever came on and went, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to. Whoa! Oh, okay, okay, we're good, we're good. Hey, what's that flashing light mean? Huh? No, no, don't push that button. Whoa! I mean, right, you don't want that, right? You want you want them to remain calm. You know when panic sets in, people do crazy things, right? I mean, think about your own life. I, my guess is the decisions you regret more than anything else are the ones that you made in reaction, in panic, when it felt like everything was going on around you. And I'm, when I look at my own life and the decisions I've made, the worst decisions I've made are the ones when I was panicking and I was freaking out and I was reacting in that mode. And, and I see this, too, in my pastoral ministry. I mean, people that end up sitting in jail, and why? Because when their ship went down, they decided, well, I'm just going to drink, and then next thing you know, that night they're in jail. Or their marriage end, and they panic thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm going to be alone the rest of my life. Nobody is ever going to, I mean, they're not going to want me because of, then you fill in the blank because of their kids, because of their family background, because of their looks. And out of that panic, they hook up with the first bozo that comes around. My guess is that most of us can look back and go, oh, yeah. See, because what happens is panic, when it sets in, you almost lose thinking about what's the best thing to do. Like, uh, I was a Boy Scout. Like, I don't tell many people, let's keep that on the down low, but I was an Eagle Scout. And uh, the hardest merit badge to get was life-saving merit badge. And the reason why is, at least for me, is because at Camp Tamarack, when you got life-saving merit badge, the adult sponsor who was in charge of it just thought it was important enough where he wasn't going to just kind of go easy on you. And so one of the requirements, you had to go out into the lake and you had to rescue somebody who was flailing around pretending to drown. But here's what happens. When somebody is drowning and you get next to them, you know what that drowning person's going to do? They're going to grab onto you. Now, they're not trying to kill you, they don't real, they're just trying to be above water, and so they're going to grab you and pull down. And so there's a technique you have to master to, to rescue somebody who's drowning because if you get around somebody who's drowning and they're in that panic, oh, my goodness, we're going under, we're going under mode, they're going to bring you down with them. Now, that's just another, that's a tidbit of another important life lesson. The people in your life who are going through shipwrecks, if they panic, be careful how close you get to them because they could bring you under with them. That's just a little sidebar in terms of sh- surviving a shipwreck. And so thoughts dictate behavior. And if we can remain in terms of our mental attitude, the ability to think clearly and not freak out and not panic, and listen, ultimately, well, I'll get to that in just a moment. Okay, uh, it's, the dic- our thoughts dictate our behavior. And so here are the two things that we don't want in the midst of our shipwreck, two people that we don't want around us. Number one, you don't want Eeyore with you. You know what I mean by Eeyore, right? Pick Tigger. Tigger's much better to have with you in a shipwreck, right? He's got enough energy to do something. But Eeyore is what? We're never going to survive. It looks like it's going to storm. That's a shark. I mean, that's what, I mean, that's what, that's Eeyore, right? You no longer have any space in your life for Eeyores in your life when you're in the midst of a shipwreck. And they're out there. They're the people who, they walk in your life and everything immediately gets depressed. Like everything's, they walk into the room and everything's a downer. When they leave the room, it's like, man, I just feel better. Why? They left. I don't know. I can't, I can't explain that. I just feel better when they're gone. They're the people that come around like when your shipwreck of a divorce happens, they step in and they got every relationship tragedy story there is. And they've never had a successful relationship in their life, but they're ready to tell you why you're never going to overcome or why this will be your future and you're never going to get this, right? Or take cancer diagnosis, right? That's a shipwreck. When you you hear that from the doctor and then some Eeyore comes walking around, oh, you had, my grandpa had that. Yeah, he died. I mean, you don't have room for that in your life, right? I mean, 
I remember, like, when my oldest son, Isaac, when he had kidney cancer before he turned two, I mean, I held on to every survival story of Wilms' tumor was the name of it that we could find. They were so encouraging to me. What I didn't have time for or wanted was the bozo that came around and said, oh, yeah, I had a, a cousin who had that, and, yeah, he died. I mean, that's just that helpful, right? We have, we have no room for the Eeyores in our life. But, but on the other extreme, we've got to say this, you also don't have any space in the midst of your shipwreck for people who are Pollyanna. And you know what I mean by this, right? You know what I, when I say the word Pollyanna, it's somebody who's so overly optimistic and encouraging and exciting. Oh, you're gonna, it's like they don't realize, you see we're in a shipwreck, right? Like they're still like, oh, this is great. Here's a margarita. And you're thinking, no, this is a shipwreck. You don't have room for people who have a voice in your life who are trying to tell you that nothing's really going on, that nothing's really wrong, that everything's, I mean, what are you talking about that you're in a shipwreck? I think everything's great. Listen, I'm not saying that you're not going to survive, but you need to come to terms with the reality that you are in the middle of a shipwreck. And you need to have people around you, not who will be Eeyores, but who at the same time won't smile at you and pretend that you're not really in a shipwreck. That somehow this Christ, and listen, spiritual people are the worst. Can I just say that out loud? Spiritual people can be so obnoxious in these moments because they tend to walk around and think, like, you can't really have any problems in your life or somehow Jesus isn't real or isn't really in your life. And, and that's all garbage. Listen, spiritual people, listen to me. Shipwrecks happen, even to people who follow after Jesus. And pretending that there's not really shipwrecks is not helpful to anybody. And God's people struggled with this for a long time. Did you know in the Old Testament there's actually false prophets who walked around when God's people were seriously in trouble? I mean, they were experiencing a shipwreck. They, they were in rebellion. They were about to lose everything. Prophets were walking around, oh, no, there's peace, there's peace. This is what God says to the prophet Ezekiel about them. Chapter 13, verse 9 says, My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations. They will not belong to the council of my people or be listed in the records of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. And here's why. He goes on, verse 10. Because they lead my people astray by saying, peace, when there is no peace. And because when a flimsy wall is built, they just cover it with whitewash. So you don't need people like that in your life either. Who's like, there's no peace. You're in the middle of a shipwreck. And if your life is a flimsy wall, you don't need somebody to cover it up with whitewash. You need somebody who's not going to go, we're all going to die, but who can say to you, oh, no, listen, we're going to make it through, but we got to come to terms and come to reality that we are in the middle of a shipwreck. And in this moment, it's that mental attitude that I think will help us to survive. I think we could get a lesson from the Admiral Jim Stockdale. I don't know if you ever heard of this man, uh, Admiral Jim Stockdale. He there's what's called the Stockstill Paradox that comes right out of his life story. Let me share with you what happened to him. He was the highest-ranking U.S. military officer in the Hanoi Hilton prisoner of war camp during the height of the Vietnam War. He was tortured over 20 times in an eight-year span of time, from 1965 to 1973. And Stockdale, he lived out the war without any prisoner rights, with no set release date, and no certainty as to whether he would even survive to ever see his family again. So not only is he in prison himself in this prisoner of war camp, but he's also bur- he, he has the burden of command to try to help as many of his fellow uh, soldiers endure without being broken their own captivity while at the same time carrying on an internal struggle and war against his captors because they're always trying to use him for propaganda. I mean, he was the highest-ranking military. And so did you know Jim Stockdale one day actually beat himself with a stool and cut his own face with a razor and disfigured himself so that they could not use him on a videotape as a cared-for prisoner? 
he instituted rules for his men on how to deal with torture because he knew no man can endure torture indefinitely. So he gave them markers. If you could just make it to this amount of time counting off, then you could share this bit of information. If you could make it to this point in time to share this bit of information. And it gave them a future orientation to endure the torture, to give up the information for release and, and, for, and to, be, to be released from that torture. And it gave them milestones by way of survival to help with the isolation that the prisoners felt. He came up with this communication system. It was a series of taps using a five-by-five matrix of alpha characters. And at his release, he was the first three-star officer ever in the history of the Navy to to receive both the Aviator Wings and the Congressional Medal of Honor. Now, years later, here's what what Admiral Jim Stockdale said. In an interview, he was asked, who didn't make it out? Who didn't make it out of the prisoner of war camps? And he said without hesitation, oh, that's easy. It was the optimist. What? The optimist? He goes, oh, yeah. The guys that would say, oh, we'll be out of here by Christmas, and then Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. And they'd say, oh, well, we'll be, we'll be out of here by Easter. And then Easter would come, and Easter would go. And they'd say, oh, well, we'll be out of here by Thanksgiving, and again, Thanksgiving would come, Thanksgiving would go, and you're back to Christmas again, that they literally died of a broken heart, that they became so discouraged in, out of their optimism that they literally just gave up, and, and in the end, it was the optimist who didn't make it. And here's what he said out of this, and I quote. He says, I never lost faith in the end of the story. Never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. Do you hear that? Never lose faith that he will get out and will even use this as a defining event of his life. But this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you cannot afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. So how do you live life in the middle of the shipwreck with, no, we are going to survive. We are going to prevail in the end, and this might even be the most defining event of my life, and at the same time, I will confront the most brutal facts, whatever they might be in my, in my situation in reality. We're, we, we might not be getting out at Christmas. We might not be getting out at Easter. We might have to be in here for eight years. These are the brutal facts, but in the end, we will prevail. That in the end, this might be the defining moment. So you found yourself in a shipwreck. I mean, I can't deny that. No one's going to look at that and go, oh, no, everything's great. Things didn't turn out the way you had hoped or dreamed, and the marriage is now over. You need to be able to look at that shipwreck in the midst of it, in the midst of it, with a confidence that you will prevail in the end, that God has a hold of you, and he will not let you go, and he will see you through. Even if you don't see, all you see is open sea, there's not another boat, there's not another plane. Even if you can't see it in the moment, you need to stare in the midst of your shipwreck with complete confidence that God has a hold of me, and because of that, I will, in the end, prevail. And yet at the same time, I'm going to confront the brutal facts as they really are. There are now new financial realities and new parenting realities and new realities of my time and space and even my emotional and physical needs, brand new realities. And I'm going to confront the reality that there might be something in my own personality that's sabotaging long-term relationships. And I'm going to confront the brutal reality. See, we're going to hang on to both. I will prevail in the end. And this might even be the defining moment in my life, but I will also use this to confront the brutal realities that I find myself in. So you find yourself in a shipwreck. This isn't the script you would have written for, addicted to drugs and alcohol. Isn't what you planned, planned on. But you're going to stare at that shipwreck and know that in the end, I will prevail. And this might even be the defining event of your life. 
but you're also going to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality. You have an addictive personality, and you need to get some help, and you're going to have to stay away from these places and those people, and you're going to need structures and systems of accountability in your life, and you're going to have to confront those triggers. But we're going to hang on to both. And you've lost your job. No one's going to deny that it's not a shipwreck. Listen, you could either fall to pieces in depression and and despair not getting out of bed or ever taking a shower, or you could go to the other extreme and pretend nothing's happened at all and keep spending money and carrying on as like you're on vacation or something. Or you could stare into this shipwreck head on and in the end say, oh no, in the end I will prevail. And even though I've lost this job, this might set me up to have the job I've always wanted, but I will also confront the most brutal facts of my reality, my new, I don't have a paycheck right now, my new financial realities. And those two things together will help us have the mental attitude to know, oh, no, we will survive. And I'm going to start thinking, listen, this isn't where I was supposed to be there, and now I'm here, but I'm still here, which makes me a survivor. And I'm going to think like a survivor, and I'm going to act like a survivor, and I'm going to stay as calm as I can and not panic and do something stupid. Let, can, can I, I want to, we'll close with this. It's in Acts chapter 27. I want to show you something. This is one of Paul's shipwrecks. You mentioned he was in three shipwrecks. He actually tells the story of one of them, and I'd like us to learn something that he does in the midst of the panic, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of this boat that at any moment is about to fall to pieces. He does something. Now, Paul had to go before King Agrippa and Festus, and they questioned him. And because Paul is a Roman citizen, he appeals to Caesar. Like, you could do that back in the day. Like, when you didn't like how things were going or your trial or your questioning, you could just say, I appeal to Caesar, and because you're a Roman citizen, you had the right to have your case heard before Caesar himself. And so when Paul does this, King Agrippa says, all right, off to Italy you go. You're going to go see Caesar. And so they put Paul on a boat, and they make several exchanges, and the weather looks a little, eh. And Paul even says, I do not recommend this. Like, we should not set sail. But the centurion listened to the pilot of the boat. He says, no, we can make it. So here's where the story picks up, verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. And before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. And the ship was caught by the storm, and it couldn't head into the wind. So we just gave way to it and were driven along. And as we passed to the lee of a small island called Kata, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. And so they're going crazy. Verse 17, the men hoisted aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship just be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally we just gave up all hope of being saved. And after they'd gone a long time without food, meaning there's no hot dogs or midnight buffet on this boat, Paul stood up before them and said this, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Now, I love this, right? For Paul's first words. You should have listened to me. <laughs> Told you so. That's a, Okay. All right, Paul. We got it. But we're still in the middle of a shipwreck, so help us out here. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to, listen, he says, keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. The ship will be destroyed. Now, how do you know this? And here's how I know. Look, look what we did. In the middle of this storm, look what happened, verse 23. Last night, an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you all the lives of those who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Okay. Okay. On one hand, 
We're going to prevail in the end. How do you know? God told me. He's going to see this through. And I have faith in my God. But the most brutal facts are, oh, by the way, we are going to run ground. The ship's going to be destroyed. Okay. Those are their two realities, right, that Paul's going to hold in tension. But in the midst of this storm, what does Paul do? He goes to his anchor and he goes to his source to carry him through. He goes to God and God reveals himself and says, listen, you, you will prevail. And the brutal facts are you are going to run ground on this island and the ship will be wrecked. But out of this, you can say to the men, and you should live this out yourself. He says in verse 22, keep up your courage. Verse 24, do not be afraid. And verse 25, have faith in God. Now, I totally get saying this out loud from the front here in a pulpit's easy to do. Be courageous. Don't be afraid. Have faith in God. I get that. That's easy to say. But when everything around you is sinking and all your hopes and all of your dreams and everything that you'd aspired for and everything you'd imagined that was going to turn out in your life when it feels like it's all gone, it's, it could be difficult to be courageous and to not be afraid and to have faith in God. But I'm telling you, if you want to survive this shipwreck, we will need to remain calm and in the midst of be able to find a space where we are before God himself to give us courage. This is a, it will be a gift from God. He will allow us to be courageous and unafraid and have radical confidence in him. These are more than just fancy words. These are more than just religious platitudes. These are more than just cliched advice. This will be the real mental attitude that you must have to make it through this shipwreck you're walking through. So you just buried your spouse of 32 years? Listen, that's a real shipwreck. I wouldn't pretend otherwise. And how are you going to make it through? With confidence that in spite of this, you will prevail. That you will be courageous, that you will not be afraid, and that you'll have faith, a radical trust in God. But I I saw the x-ray scan myself. I mean, I heard the diagnosis. I heard it. I mean, I heard the doctor say, I know. I'm not going to pretend for a moment that this is not a shipwreck. But in the midst of it, God is going to give you the gift to be courageous in the midst of it. And to not be afraid, even of death itself. And have faith and a radical trust in him. Yeah, but my son, he's looking at 15 to 25 years in federal prison. That's my reality. I know. It's a shipwreck, and I wouldn't say otherwise. But in the midst of it, I need you to have from God, be with God in a way that allows him to give you the gift of courage, to not be afraid, and have a radical confidence in him. And sometimes the scriptures can help us. And let me just read to you some scriptures, and you might want to write these down. This might be for you an anchoring point of something you're going through right now. Isaiah 41.10, do not fear. I am with you. This is God speaking. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So you, you might need that in your shipwreck in this moment. Or Psalm 27, verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So you, you've got a court date coming up that's very significant. Maybe Psalm 27.1 is yours. Or Philippians 4, 6 to 8, you had the scans and now you're just waiting for the results. Maybe for you it's do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure or lovely or admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You you didn't get into the college you wanted to, or you got kicked out of the college that you wanted to get into. Maybe Jeremiah 29, verse 11 to 13 is yours. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and and come and pray to me, and I'm going to listen to you, and you will seek me and find me, and when you seek me with all of your heart. 
or maybe for others of you, it's Psalm 9, 9 to 10. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. For those who know your name, trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Or maybe for you, you're just tired of treading water. Like you're, you're, like you're tired and exhausted. And it feels like at any moment you're ready just to quit. Maybe yours is Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you're going to find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Or maybe you're watching the person that you love more than anyone else in the world slip away with Alzheimer's. You don't even know day to day whether they're going to remember you, recognize you, if you're going to have a good day, a bad day. Maybe for you it's 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Therefore, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is on unseen. Because what is seen is just temporary, but what's unseen is eternal. Or finally, maybe it's just Romans 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that's about to be revealed in us. Horatio Spafford had a wife named Anna, and they were pretty well known in the 1860s in Chicago. He was a lawyer there, and he had several business endeavors as well, but in in 1870, things started to go wrong. The Spaffords had only one son. They had four daughters and one son, and the son was killed by scarlet fever. He was just four years old. A year later, the properties that uh, Horatio Spafford owned were all lost in 1871 in the Great Chicago Fire. And aware of the toll that all that had taken the disasters on his family, Horatio thought to himself, you know what, I just need to send my family on a great vacation. And so him and his wife and his four daughters left for New York City to board a boat to go to England. They were going to go on a, a vacation together as a family. At the last minute, Horatio Spafford had to take care of some business. And rather than putting off the vacation, he persuaded his wife and daughters, you just go on and out, and I'm going to head back to Chicago, take care of this, and then I'm going to meet you there and join you there. And that's what they did. So Anna Spafford and the four daughters took off on a French vessel to go to England. And on their way there, the vessel ran into another ship, and it sank in 12 minutes. And 226 people on that boat died. And Anna Spafford stood bravely on the deck with her four daughters, Annie, Maggie, Bessie, and Tanita, clinging desperately onto her. Her last memory had been of her baby being torn violently from her arms by the force of the waters. Anna was only saved from the fate of her daughters by a plank which floated beneath her unconscious body and propped her up. When they rescued her and they got on shore to Wales, she sent Horatio Spafford, her husband, a telegram, and it said this one thing. It said, saved alone. Upon hearing the terrible news, Horatio Spafford boarded the next ship out of New York City to join his bereaved wife. And on the ship on the way there, when they got to the spot where his four daughters had died in that shipwreck, the captain of the boat called Horatio to the bridge and said, the best we can tell in our calculations, this is the spot where that boat sank and went down and you lost your four daughters. So Horatio Spafford at that moment went back to his cabin. He grabbed some paper and a pen and he wrote down these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, lest this blessed assurance control, 
that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. And because of that, it is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. See, how do we, in the midst of our shipwrecks, stand with a great confidence that we will prevail in the end and we'll still confront the most brutal facts of our reality, but we will hang on to the anchor who has gripped us so that we can say, no matter what's going on around us, it is well with my soul. Let's stand. Let's sing together.